0: Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Roll and check out our website at let it roll Podcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Daniel Davies, author of King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King, for a discussion of King's early days and rise to fame. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Daniel DuVizet, author of King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King. Daniel,
2: welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's an honor to me because this is an excellent book on a figure that for as big as he is, as well-known as he is, as beloved as he was for so long, he's showered with awards, Kennedy Center this, Lincoln Center that you know on pbs all the time hung out with bono and eric clapton his actual work that got him into the pantheon of american music the stuff that he did that made him one of the most influential musicians of his generation or of the american 20th century kind of gets overlooked and so i'm glad that your book helps put the focus back on his i mean it tells the whole story of his life but you you can't help but notice the center of gravity of his life is these creative accomplishments in the 50s and 60s that were really i wouldn't say unparalleled but certainly matched any of the biggest greatest names of the 20th century louis armstrong james brown elvis the beatles whoever you want to throw him up against he can hang but one thing was interesting in the intro you said that bb king's story was the story of the great migration can you elaborate on that
2: well yeah um he was born in the middle of the 1920s, which is almost a century ago now. And he was born in Mississippi in the Delta, um, which was, you know, one of the poorest sections of one of the poorest states in the union. And he was born right in the middle of the sharecropping era, which was, I think I describe it as sort of economic successor to to slavery um, in as much as uh, the, the, the black sharecropper families generally dwelt below the poverty line and 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 worked for a negative net sum at the end of every year um it it takes some understanding and charlie sawyer bb's previous biographer did a great job figuring this out but basically the families would toil all year and then at the end of the year they would owe all this money to the landowner and so they'd end up in debt so a whole bunch of families you know en masse migrated northward to the big cities and there were jobs and there were waves of, of this migration that took place, uh, gosh, throughout the uh, – I'm, I'm not sure I remember the date when it started, but uh, – well um, – the, 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 well.
1: It picks up after World War One, and it starts as soon as as slavery has ended. But it really picks up steam after World War One. Henry Ford's factories in Detroit was a huge magnet. Similarly, uh, New York and Harlem, etc. Chicago and Memphis is one of these cities to the north of Mississippi, even though it's still very much in the South, and that's where it pulled BB King.
2: Yeah, and um, yeah. For forgive me, it's forgettery. You know, I spent four years on this book, and now I'm midway through the next one, and so the dates are all going to fly. Out of my brain, but yes, and so this, there were waves of this northward migration, and the, you picture the the railroad traveling north to Chicago. BB basically got off in a figurative sense in Memphis and never went farther north. He thought Chicago was too cold, but yeah, that's why I say his story. It's it's a wonderful pin and peg for exploring that that migration, basically.
1: Yeah, and he certainly epitomized it. I mean, literally from the cotton fields to the stage at the Kennedy Center. Uh, medal of freedom medal of honor all that kind of stuff and yeah perfect metaphor and you also picked a particular anecdote um to to focus on in the introduction and it was around the recording of one of his greatest works which was live at the cook county jail so i want to ask you two questions about that what is it about the live at the cook county jail recording that makes it stand out in his discography and why did you pick that particular story and why does it give such a window into some of the dilemmas and contradictions he ran into with his success
2: Well, right. So any story that's a a narrative story, which would include a a good podcast, has a narrative arc to it. And in my narrative arc, the sort of peak, the payoff, the climax, the literary climax of the story is is B.B. King at the Fillmore, which is the moment where he kind of crosses over from being a huge star uh, in the segregated black music world to being kind of the world's star. And I couldn't use that. (laughs) I couldn't use that as the opening scene in the book because then I lose my sort of payoff moment. Um, So I I thought, what are the other great scenes from his career that are really powerful and really dramatic that I could open the book with just, you know, kind of as a scene setter? And the Cook County Jail worked great because it's like the third of three really spectacular live performances of BB's that wound up being immortalized in great records. It's the third one, the last one. And it happened after a time where he was already could crossed over and was mostly playing for white listeners, many fewer black listeners, or I guess the same number of black listeners, but a huge new group of white listeners. But here he was back with a a mostly black population in a jail and they all knew his stuff back to the beginning. And so it's this really powerful moment of kind of reconnect for him. And then also it's Chicago, which is kind of uh, they would argue they're the epicenter of the blues. So it felt like a good moment to kind of start the story at. And you'll understand, though, I didn't want to take like the thing that was my big kind of peak moment and use that at the very beginning. But yeah, this so this worked as a perfect kind of opening scene.
1: Perfect. And now let's get into his childhood, because I think one of the powerful things about reading biographies like this, I mean, it's like what reading the autobiography of Frederick Douglass should do for people in middle school or high school once you read the accounts of the lives of people who were impacted by chattel slavery and by the Jim Crow system which succeeded it and by the mass incarceration system we're in now you it's impossible to say oh they had it you know people who were enslaved and dragged over from Africa had it better over here blah 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 no they didn't B.B. king and his family have An extremely difficult childhood and and life, like telling the story of his parents and grandparents and his young childhood. It's just staggering. I mean, young Riley King, and that was his name, born 1925. Just, It's hard for me to even pick out which nuggets of horror and trauma and deprivation to ask you about. But I think the death of his younger brother is like the key incident tell us about that what happened and how did that kind of haunt BB for the rest of his life
2: oh yeah well um riley was born and uh was with his mother and his father and they were living in a cabin on um you know on, on land owned by a white landowner or land renter, I couldn't find that property in the records, so maybe it was a, a white guy who was renting land from someone else. But anyway, it's it, this is so far along ago, too, that, that there aren't many published records. But, um, and then a, a younger brother was born, um, I think maybe a year later, maybe two years later, and died at a very, very young age. I think his name was Curse, like C U R C E, and this little baby died. Um, and I don't think BB, Mr. King remembered maybe exactly why or how this happened. And I don't think his father, Albert King, maybe uh, it wasn't a story that he would tell probably over and over, but clearly it was a traumatic loss for the whole family. Uh, supposedly, maybe he'd eaten some glass somehow. I don't know how that might have happened. And B.B. later on kind of hinted that maybe somehow, maybe his parents had somehow blamed him for the glass being there. I don't know. It's it's very foggy, but clearly it traumatized him, and it sets up a couple of things in B.B.'s life, which are as I'm being his biographer. This is stuff I'm fascinated by and have to keep f- focusing on. This loss of loss of family. He loses his family, you know, bit by bit, just ripped away from him. First, his little baby brother, and then his parents split up when he's about five or six, and then his mother dies when he's about nine or ten. And then he's with his basically with his grandmother. And then she dies, I think, of tuberculosis when he's about 14. And so just one by one by one, the characters in his family just sort of fade away. And um, this defines him because he'll spend the rest of his life as an adult trying to sort of cobble together a family, which we can talk about later. But that's what's driving him is he just feels like his family was ripped out from under him as a child.
1: And there's this other thread other than tragedy and and horror that goes through his childhood, and that is these pockets of sanctuary. And these stories, like his father has a story of as a young child, Albert King was taken in by a family called the Loves, and this town they lived in Claire was spared by the famous Mississippi flood that, you know, if you're a Led Zeppelin fan or a Beastie Boys fan, you probably know something about the Mississippi flood and Steph's mad at me because I didn't cue my song. Let's go ahead and hear our first song from B.B. King. This is Mistreated Woman. Now
0: I'm gonna leave it darling, And your crying won't make me stay
1: And that was "Mistreated Woman" by BB King, and what is it that makes that song so significant? Because it's not his very first single, it's not his very first hit. What Why is it that you singled that track out to talk about the
2: book? Oh goodness, I would have to look that one up. I, I uh, It's I, the vibrato. Sorry. I, I, oh, okay, yeah. I, I wrote a playlist, which anybody listening to this can go seek out. I uh, a, a, one of the one of the wonderful British music publications uh, put up a playlist of like eighteen songs that lead us up to the thrill is gone and I bet this one's on here. So if this is the one that you're thank you for reminding me. Uh, there's a lot of dispute and debate among the BB King aficionados and, and and serious like music uh, heads about when exactly BB started playing the vibrato. But what I assert in my book, one of my two huge working theories in this book is that BB King uh, around 49 to 50 in that year, well when he his, his second uh, arrival in memphis he spent hours and hours you know the proverbial thousand hours or whatever learning his own style on the guitar and his inspirations were uh some guitarists before him such as lonnie johnson and especially t-bone walker who'd played with some vibrato now vibrato if you think of like yasha heifetz the violin it's like this it's like a human voice rendered on an instrument right um but that didn't come natural to guitar players they did a little bit of it but not much BB basically brought it really to life, uh, making a tar- guitar sound like a human voice, I would argue for the first time. And he was inspired both by the violin sound, uh, which, which the classically trained Lonnie Johnson, I think, had understood. and uh, also also he was inspired by the pedal steel uh, in Hawaii, uh, which, had, which had migrated to the United States and this really lovely that sort of sound. He loved it. And so he developed the singular sound and really brought the human vocal timbre into the guitar. And I assert it, that song that you were just talking about, which I think was 1950, is one Enjoy. of the, if not the first, one of the first where he where he plays with the B.B. King style vibrato. So that's a long friggin' time ago, 1950. I mean, think about when the vibrato entered the vernacular of British and, and white American rock music. We're talking the end of the 60s, right? Before yeah. that, think about your old Beatle records, your old Stones records from 64, 65. There's very little, if any, vibrato. That's B.B.'s sound, and it took almost two full decades to pass from B.B. through his black acolytes in blues mm-hmm. To his white acolytes in rock
1: yeah absolutely and one thing that staggered me which is something i've known since i was 15 but it hit me hard over again reading this is that all of early hard rock owes its lead instrument style to bb king i mean whether it's tony iomi or jimmy page or Jimi hendrix all of these guys eric clapton they all adopted his techniques which were very unconventional and he's an odd well, we'll talk a little bit about his struggles to develop as a musician he's kind of an odd bird um he wasn't a virtuoso he couldn't play every jazz chord he didn't play rhythm he he, he had very serious limitations on his talent and yet he found this way to create this innovative new style that by the time i came along in the 80s was pretty much a stock cliche and that's one thing that makes it hard to appreciate the accomplishment of people like bb king is because their acolytes flourish so much that they they minimize you know the impact of it once you've heard it done badly a million times it's hard uh-huh. to fathom um how powerful it was and going back and reading through this it really really hit me that this guy is enormously influential on hard rock and the lead guitar styles therein all the way through but i want to get back to his biography because there's a second trend in the story of his family and it, and it's things like his father being taken in by a family called the loves when he had nothing and is absolutely an orphan to some relatively benign landowners that B.B. worked with. And again, and also things like Berclair being spared by the flood. It seems like there was enough goodness in the universe that B.B. King was in that he was kind of sheltered. And he had some opportunities like his cousin Buca White, Bucca White, who's one of the early Delta, kind of the last of the great Delta bluesmen of the twenties and thirties. And that was BB's cousin, somebody he saw in his own home as a child and had a role model who's dressing sharp and having this guitar and living a life that's very distinct from the cotton field. So um this kind of twofold thing I think goes a long way to explain BB King because he you know, the only other musician I can think of who had a sibling die and under circumstances like that is Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, whose sister died of leukemia, and his parents blamed him and wouldn't talk about her. And oh, that wow. resulted in Brian Jones being this twisted, tragic, horrible person. But something saved B.B. King from that kind of fate, despite having hardships way more than Brian Jones could ever imagine. He becomes this benign, beloved, be, you know, loving figure. and And so this... What do you make of these people like Barrett Johnson um, and Flake Cartridge, who were white landowners who were really sometimes they took advantage of BB in a business sense, but they were really pretty benign actors compared to their neighbors.
2: Yeah, this is this is maybe a little bit of a radioactive topic in this day and age. But BB um, King, in his memoir, you know, in his voice goes on and on in their praise um, uh, the, the, the white landowners p- whom, to whom fate cast him, basically um, he praises them and says they were like almost like parental figures and role models, kind of like a great early boss or something. I was very, 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 very careful in my book with this stuff because I mean, we're, we're talking about um, a, a black man growing up in terror in Mississippi and he had I would say little choice but to be very deferential toward any white person and I now granted I have no evidence these these men were, were bad to him or mean to him I, I think no they probably were relatively among white landowners in the Mississippi were probably you know uh, pretty good and, and pretty fair and and pretty honest uh, but it, it's it's so hard to to try to judge them and judge his relationship with them by contemporary standards because the whole sharecropping system was so kind of inherently evil that it's tricky. I, I guess the the best I can say about it, looking through a lens of 2022, is that the people he was into whose whose households he was thrown into, right, were benevolent enough, um, especially later on as he was getting older that they kind of uh, you know, planted the seeds that enabled him to escape, to lib- liberate himself from sharecropping and from that horrible system and to actually start earning money. By the time he's working for Johnson Barrett, who's this Jewish uh, Mississippi landowner who apparently was not racist, um, he's kind of a tough guy, but, I mean, me, kind of a mean boss, but not a racist. And he had, like, his number two guy, the guy who was kind of like his um, – ranch hand guy like the lead like the foreman was a black man Apparently, that was almost unknown in mississippi so yeah there was some validity to this and that's that was the sort of you know luck that enabled bb to kind of ascend to where he was a tractor driver earning good money and had some capital and was able to actually finally escape right so yeah there's something to that
1: and it's not just white people it's also people like his cousin burkett and hit and his aunt beulah you know um one of uh flight cartridge one of the white landowners had bought bb i think his first guitar but (laughs) when he he lost that aunt beulah steps up and buys the second one so just like the black loves family saved his father albert king there's also benevolent black people in this picture so it's not just you know white heroes or white saviors there's sort of angels of all colors um, stepping in to help B.B. King. And like you say the racial terror is no joke. He witnessed a lynching as a very young child in a Mississippi town and this is just straight up street murder and basically any white person in the South in this time was empowered to murder any black person at any time for any reason. That's what it was. That's the deal. Um, And so yeah, it's absolute racial terror and horror going on but let's hear our next song. This is Three O'Clock Blues. And that was Three O'Clock Blues from 1950 or 51, B.B. King's first number one R&B hit. And it's very unusual. I think it was his seventh single. Very unusual in this period to have an artist who fails to chart, and yet a record company at that time was willing to invest the capital in putting out record after record after record, and that's because he had a big audience as a DJ and a live performer in Memphis. So even though it wasn't big national hits, it was promising enough and remunerative enough for modern records to keep going and we'll keep we'll come back to the modern records and his career in Memphis but I do want to talk about the secret ingredient on that track which is the piano player Ike uh-huh. Turner who yeah. originally they had a very well reputed you know, uh, Phineas Newborn who's a legendary Memphis jazz piano player was playing on the track and it wasn't quite cutting it what did Ike Turner do different that was a special sauce on that song
2: well everybody in in memphis claims to have been on that session you know cuz it was a huge success success as many parents so i put i, I kind of draw this line in the manuscript like if we're all to believe everyone then there was like 5000 people playing on this track but ike turner actually did play on it and what happened was you know he's a, he was a smart ambitious kid so and he was a kid i mean he was a teenager he just starts noodling on the piano when they take five and Joe Bahari, the producer, says, Hey, who the hell is that? You know, that's the sound I want. That. I said, who is this guy? He said, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm Mike Turner. And he says, Oh, okay, you're fired, you know, the jazz brilliant jazz pianist, you're fired. He had the wrong rhythm. You're hired, Ike Turner, who had this amazing prototypical rock and roll, rock and rollin' sort of beat. And so Ike Turner winds up propelling the song. And uh, once Ike Turner was in place, uh, Joe Bahari had the take that he wanted and that became the song that went to number 1.
1: And let's go back a little bit and talk about BB's formative musical influences because that's very consistent with the, the narrative of of the podcast as you say. Um and I, and I want to mention he he was singing gospel um right from the get go, singing in the church and and playing guitar along with it influenced by the Golden Gate Quartet and the Solsters, but none of those people had guitars. So it was very unusual for a gospel group to have guitar backing, although that later penetrates into gospel. Meanwhile, he's got access to movies and newsreels and even a coin-operated thing called a mutoscope where you could pay 10 mm-hmm. cents and watch basically a music video. And so he sees artists like Louis Armstrong, Cab Calloway, Charlie Christian, the great jazz guitarist, the first electric guitarist who was playing with Benny Goodman, absolutely transfixed by Charles Christian, but then he gets to see count Basie and Jay McShann live. And you know, Charlie Parker was playing with Jay McShann around this period. Do we know if Charlie Parker was with Jay McShann with BB King?
2: Saw? you know, however I phrase it in the book, I think that I, it was, it was credible that he could have seen him. Um, you know, BB was recounting the stuff many, many years later, but you've got the right. And by the way, may I say you were extremely well prepared. You're a real pro. Um, Thank you. yeah. Uh, Basically, what sets him apart from a lot of the other Delta blues people is that his, his his tastes were Catholic. A lot of his earliest experiences with these artists were on a Victrola that his his hip great aunt owned. So he was listening to recordings by the likes of Blind Lemon Jefferson out of Texas and the, the Bessie Smith, the great women blues singers from the twenties, who had sold big big numbers of records before the Depression. He was not what he was not listening to was Delta Bluesmen. Um, he was listening on the radio later on when he gets to where he has access to film and to jukebox type recordings. He's listening, yes, to Charlie Christian. He's listening to stuff that's from all over the country, Kansas City and all over Texas. Texas almost is like his his real kind of like home base as far as his own musical taste. Not Mississippi. And uh, so that sets him apart because most of I, I picture most of the other great Delta Blues artists listening to each other and learning from each other. And there's this kind of lineage. And B.B. was was outside of that lineage. And we're going to talk more about this. But he he did not really draw a huge amount of inspiration from very many of the Delta Blues giants who'd come before him.
1: Yeah, you got a great quote in there. And it, it reminds me of an episode we did with Elijah Wald, who had written what's considered a revisionist biography of Robert Johnson. But I thought it was very It pointed out some very important things that Robert Johnson was not that popular in his lifetime, and when he did become popular, it was with white audiences much later on, not so much with the black pop audience of that time or the R&B audience of that time. And you got a quote from B.B. King that absolutely reinforces this. B.B. said, "You'd think I'd be under Robert Johnson's spell, but I wasn't. He didn't speak to me with the power of Lonnie Johnson or Blind Lemon. I listened to Robert Johnson and liked him, but that is all. And so, yeah, I think that's very important. And also the fact that he's getting things through the media and not just. I think ever since Alan Lomax went and recorded Muddy Waters, you know, in, in a cabin on a plantation, there's been this need to." overly ruralize or isolate these guys and they did have access to american culture limited access but they had jukeboxes and record players and radios that they had access to at various times and bb king's one of these examples and also his vocal influences um which they don't talk about bb as a singer very much but you point out that his vocal influences again were very wide-ranging nat king cole winoni harris louis jordan those guys are kings of R&B of, of the 40s and 50s. And Roy Brown. Roy Brown. Known for Good Rock and But what was it that Roy Brown had that <laughs> B.B. carried on?
2: It's this, yeah. It's kind of rising up to the note at the end of every line. Doodle, 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 yeah. Um, that was Roy Brown's thing. It is, it is prototypical rock and roll. And B.B. picked up on it. And I, I sort of muse that if B.B. had had no hits after the middle of the 1950s, he might've been remembered as one of the great Roy Brown imitators <laughs> because he sounded a lot like Roy Brown. And let me get back to Robert Johnson. Cause I think that quote from BB, which he gave to David Ritz, that isn't just about BB's true feelings about Robert Johnson. This is also a rare moment where BB is revealing the full, I think what he really thinks of himself. I think BB deep down knew that he was one of the all time greats. I think he knew that he was arguably the most important blues artist of of the post-war era along with maybe muddy waters. And he gives huge props to muddy. I think he's trying to communicate to the reader that maybe he thinks Robert Johnson maybe doesn't deserve a hundred percent of the acclaim that he now has. Again, like you say, especially with kind of a white uh, folk blues aficionados of a certain age, I think that's his maybe his, his, his true immodest, feelings kind of because he's so modest and so humble and it drives me crazy the man never says i'm the greatest ever you know but there when he's talking about robert johnson i just think for a moment you see a flash of maybe he, that he really does realize how great he is you know and that and that he's he's in the pantheon and 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 maybe maybe he, he feels that robert johnson maybe has a bit more of the legend uh, affixed to him than he deserves
1: Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, I'm going to ask you to kind of contradict all of that because of a key figure (laughs) who comes into the story. So what we've said so far is all true, all documented. but there's another figure who comes in here who plays an enormous role in BB King's musical development, who had a direct connection to Robert Johnson. If anyone could be said to have been Robert Johnson's musical apprentice, it was Robert Jr. Lockwood. that's why they called him Robert Jr. What was his role in BB King's musical development?
2: Yeah, um there's a bunch of different ways. Um, Lockwood influenced BB but what what I picture as having happened is that he entered BB's life right when BB was becoming a successful Dj and was becoming popular enough that he could he could gig all around the tri-state area around Memphis and earn real money um, and he was supporting his his gigging with radio of Djing radio appearances and advertising and selling this tonic out of a flatbed truck on weekends he was getting to be a big name so Robert jr Lockwood is a tremendously technically talented guitarist not only could he play like a dead ringer for robert johnson he could do a hundred different styles he was enormously enormously talented sort of like a a jimmy page studio level guitarist but in the idiom of the delta blues and i don't even know if that's a fair comparison to either man but um and so bb hires him basically as a second guitarist and so robert uh lockwood tours around with bb in the first months and year or two Maybe only a year. Nobody seems sure about exactly how long this was. And he's a member of the B.B. King Band. And what's really ginormously important about this is that here you had an electric blues band playing around Memphis with two guitarists. And even having one guitar in a band was bizarre in that era in the, in the rock, the rhythm and blues market. If you look at the rhythm and blues charts, other than really occasional uh, breakthrough performances by Lonnie Johnson, who was still recording, even though he was older, Sister Rosetta Tharp, who I think went to number two in the charts at one point, Muddy Waters himself on the slide, there weren't really guitar people singing and getting on the charts. So to even have one guitar in a blues band was bizarre in 1949. And it's very hard to understand that in this day and age, because now guitars everywhere. So B.B. had two. And with the two-guitar attack, B.B. was freed, was liberated to play only solo, which is where he's able to develop this butterfly the sort of nigel tufnell you know that sort of technique and to be a solo guitarist with this arguably more technically talented guitarist playing uh rhythm and that's the template that you later see in all of like the british blues rock bands in the 60s and into the 70s and beyond the two guitar attack that was i think a novel thing and and, and bb's band was one of the first
1: and also bb king for all those gifts like he's somebody who's immediately drawing a crowd when he sings at church with the gospel group. He's somebody who immediately starts earning money when he starts playing blues on the street corners. And that's a classic story we don't have time to get to, but um you know, he he had this conversion experience where he's panhandling for money and <laughs> or or uh, not panhandling but busking for money, yeah. And and not getting any money with the church songs, even though he's drawing an audience. But when he starts playing the blues, he gets a dime, he gets a quarter, he gets a dollar, and and he figures out quote God has the blues. Um, and that's you know this tension between uh, gospel and the blues that's going on through this whole period and and later. But he's also somebody who plays alone, and he's not a schooled musician for all his talent and when on his first records he can't keep time with the band so robert jr lockwood actually sat down and said kid (laughs) count with the bass and play with the band and you can't play seven bars of this and five bars of that you need to play four 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 you know and if you're going to do something weird let the band know ahead of time so he's kind of his musical teacher. And I just thought it was fascinating that for all of his sort of, um, uh, I, I'm forgetting the word when you kill the King, but um, iconoclasts um, some regarding Lonnie, Robert Johnson, h- here he is being taught by the man's apprentice. So these connections, you know, it, it's hard, hard to break those bounds, but
2: yeah. And it, it may I say, this is not much different than probably what happened the first time Bob Dylan tried to play with a full electric band. Bob Dylan had been, playing solo acoustic and counted out his measures for as many beats as he as he pleased because he's playing alone. That's what BB was doing was playing solo. And so he had to learn to work within four, four time and kind of a certain number of measures per, you know, in the 12 bar blues, he had to be taught that because he'd been playing by himself for the most part.
1: Yeah, and it's something that some of BB's contemporaries like John Lee Hooker or Lightning Hopkins never learned to do. They didn't need to. They didn't want to. And if they were going to have backing bands, well, you guys better be sharp. So if they're playing with somebody like Ry Cooter, who's a master musician paying close attention, uh, they could get through it. But you know, if you hear yeah. John Lee Hooker with a mediocre band, um, and I'm not going to name any names, it's but – plenty of recordings of it it's pretty bad because they're not they don't know to adjust to his time and he's not being consistent but let's talk about bb he gets to memphis he he has this terrible incident where he's doing pretty well in the delta he's driving a tractor he's making money he's married he's got a good relationship with the landowner even though the guy's kind of done some things that kind of you know, he blocked B.B.'s chance to serve in the U.S. military in World War II, which is a double-edged sword. He didn't get killed in combat. On the other hand, he didn't get the education and benefits that he, you know, he served enough time in the army, almost 90 days, just short of being eligible for benefits. And and the, the land boss got him and his cousin uh, deferred so they could stay and work on the plantation. So some exploitation there. But he, he's got a situation where he's driving a tractor. He messes up jumps off the tractor and leaves the barn before he let it run down and these these old engines would sometimes backfire and he ended up wrecking a tractor and rather than going into debt to his boss he flees to memphis which has disastrous consequences for his cousin and his aunt who kind of bear the brunt of the boss's wrath but he gets to memphis he's taken in by his other cousin buka white and uh you know gets to see book and other other street performers and, and local musicians but then he comes back to the delta and then comes back to memphis again in 1949 he comes to stay and and now he's got an electric guitar and he gets radio opportunities tell us about wdia and and what was unique about them the the first all black radio station in the world or first black music. They had white management and, and plenty yeah. of white DJs. But what, how did B.B. fit into this and, and how did it help him make his name?
2: Well, first of all, um, th- there's two years between that, uh, two and a half years between that first Memphis journey in 1946, I think it was, and then the second one, which is right around the beginning of 49. And I think that B.B. spent those two years paying off that debt that he owned, yep. owed to the landowner, so that it really did set him back i mean this is he's in his 20s at this point the to, the clock is ticking um and, but he did the right thing he went back and paid off uh, the the $500 which was an enormous sum at that time that he owed so then he comes back finally to memphis and by, and then he's he's ready you know and wdi had opened the previous year it was the first station to try to do all black talent so all of the djs were black the people running the boards were white there were stupid rules that black the black djs weren't allowed to like do the controls it was you know so there's still bizarro segregation going on but the black talent were treated, everyone there treated each other with dignity, called each other Mr. and Ms. It was very respectful. So that was different from the rest of the, the South, right? Um, so BB arrives there and they have already one or maybe two black DJs and they're just getting off the ground. And he's probably aware of the station because it probably would have broadcast down far enough South that he would have heard it. And, and Booker White would have told him about it. But he shows up in Memphis, and there's two parts to this story. He first goes to West Memphis and talks his way onto the air with uh, Sonny Boy, the the harmonica guy who's now a harmonica legend. Uh, Sonny Boy was one of two great DJs on KWEM West Memphis, the other being Howlin' Wolf.
1: Small town.
2: And and (laughs) he talked his way onto uh, Sonny Boy's show and did one song and I guess sounded good enough that he got himself a gig that friggin' very day uh, playing for, uh, you know, Miss Annie's Cafe in West Memphis. I mean, this is very purposeful. This is why BB does this. He's hustling. So he gets a gig. Now he's got a gig, a regular gig. The next day, he goes to WDIA, which is in Memphis proper, first sort of station that's going to be all black DJs, and talks his way into that station. He says, hey, I've got a gig. <laughs> I've got a gig over in which he literally had had for 24 hours and I want to do some radio to promote it. They hear him. He's good. Uh, they hire him at first. I, I want to say to do like little, maybe 15 minute segments where he's just playing like three songs and saying, I'm BB King or I'm, I'm yeah, they, 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 they decided to call him BB the day he shows up there The the, the producer, the guy who was the station general manager came up with the BB B. letters. It was just something that was like a reflexive thing back then. We'll call you BB, B., you know? And he's so he debuts on the air around March of 49 doing these little 15 minute spots where he's promoting himself and his brand and these gigs he's doing in West Memphis. And it all goes from there.
1: Yeah, and it's it's notable that he's immediately making an impact despite his manifest limitations. So there was something about him. He's very charismatic, obviously, great singing voice, and he's also a student. Like you talk about how he was a student of Arthur Godfrey, uh, who was this enormously popular white broadcaster at the time, and he's learning, f- modeling himself on on Godfrey uh, for this DJ style. But then um, he makes contact with. Sam Phillips, and how does this work out? Like, tell us a little bit about the Sam Phillips and the Bahari brothers, and and Ike Turner. This whole like complicated sort of triangle of hmm. betrayals and counter. Oh, Steph's telling me I got a cue first, so but we'll get to that story. But first, we got to hear "Sweet Little Angel" by BB King. Oh, okay. A sweet little angel from bb king a mid-period song that's covered by the jeff beck and rod stewart group pretty influential number one to pick but now back to the story how does he get mixed up with sam phillips and who are the bahari brothers and how is ike turner's other record play into the plots and counterplots that end up leading bb to go from bullet records to modern records and and cause a lot of chaos in a lot of people's lives
2: well um the first recordings B.B. does are in the summer of 1949 for Bullet, which was at that point the nearest record label, which was in Nashville. And they're not all that good. He sounds he hasn't yet put in his sort of thousand hours of practice and refinement, uh, really developing his own sound. And these are the ones where if you really care to, you can hear him not you know, having the ape, ape shit time that Robert Lockwood accused him of. Um, he, he couldn't quite follow the band. But so over the next year, he he practices and practices and gigs every night, and just gets much much better, and you can hear the difference. So the next summer, which is summer of 1950, he falls in with a, a group of people. One is Sam Phillips, who's opened this recording studio in Memphis, and he's mostly I, I picture him mostly doing like weddings and stuff, but he also is recording and hunting for talent for you know for. Uh, musical artist in memphis black and white you know he just wants to make money and wants to put music up and sam phillips in turn is partnering with the bahari brothers they're a hungarian jewish immigrant family in beverly hills they all like eight or ten of them lived in this house rented house i think in beverly hills and they opened and started a music a record label modern records Uh, after they'd run uh, jukeboxes and had kind of learned rhythm and blues by by filling jukeboxes which chris blackwell from island records did too which is interesting anyway so the bahari brothers make these scouting trips to memphis which is a regional provincial capital of rhythm and blues and they end up working with uh sam phillips and try to make a deal that sam phillips will record a few artists and the bahari brothers Will buy the tapes and put out the records because because they have a record press in the, in Watts, you know in L. A. And BB is one of these artists who records a succession of singles with Sam Phillips. And there's uh, so much to unpack about this, but to keep it really simple, Sam Phillips, for all of his subsequent genius, you know, does not hear what BB is. He doesn't seem to get that BB is going to be this amazingly influential guitar master. All he hears is, is he's a pretty good singer, very good singer. But only that, and and just kind of loses interest in them. The Bahari brothers, to their credit, do not lose interest, and then they have a, a very messy, ugly falling out, which has to do with who exactly controlled which song. And I think that the where they had the falling out was over uh, was it was it over the Ike Rocket
0: 88?
2: Yes. Yeah, which 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 Sam Phillips had recorded with Jackie breston is that his name
1: yeah but Uh, it was ike turner's rhythm kings were the band that walked into the studio with the song and when by the time the record comes out on chess and this is after the baharis have already slicked sam phillips out of any contractual role with bb king which he wasn't happy about originally sam thought the deal was he would be contractually connected to bb king and and would always be basically he thought he was going to be licensing bb king's recordings to the baharis and instead they cut him out then he records Ike turner and then it's sung by the saxophone player he sells it to the chess brothers instead of the bahari brothers which under him right yeah Yeah. another betrayal and then ike is betrayed because he cuts this huge hit single it's his band he's the leader he probably the main songwriter his name's not on it. He's soon squeezed out of Jackie Brinson's career. He doesn't end up with a contract with Chess. So he ends up then allying with Bahari and, like we mentioned already, playing uh, a key role on B.B. King's first hit. So, um, yeah, the, the backstabbing's going on. I just wanted to get those machinations in there because those are characters that show up on the podcast over mm-hmm. and over again. Um, and in Sam Phillips' defense, he was in love with Helen Wolf. So it's not that he was deaf to the blues. It's just he had this preference for howlin wolf and this is something you see in a ton of fans even today and i was always on that side oh i like the chicago blues i like muddy and howlin i'm not into that smooth memphis stuff with bb king and bobby blue bland i've since learned i was stupid and they're both great but (laughs) but once upon a time you know that's how i saw it i think a lot of people see themselves so sam was on that split but anyway so then he works with modern he has this massive number one hit we're going to have to kind of compress the rest of his life in very short terms. Tell us about his time on the Chitlin Circuit in the 50s and 60s, and you know how he became such a mainstay, and some of the people he worked with, the Bill Streeters like Johnny Ace and et cetera.
2: Well, um, yeah, the, the basic uh, story of Beebe's uh, tenure on the on the Chitlin Circuit, which was from the beginning, the beginning around 1950, all the way up until the middle. Really, of the 1960s, is that uh, anybody who was a fan of his now would be surprised to know that he was regarded mostly as a singer, as the great sort of straight blues singer. Um, he would he would win these polls in in the African American press, you know, as the greatest blues singer of the year over and over again. Yes, he played the guitar and he played it beautifully and and was basically planting the seeds for the likes of. Uh, you know, uh, oh, well, Clapton, Otis Back Rush, Sun Seals, oh, first, yes, first the great black board, performers, yeah, Albert
1: Collins, uh, Buddy, 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 Buddy Guy. Guy,
2: in at the beginning of the 60s, all of them are acolytes of B.B. King. They were the they were the, grand, the group who really understood that B.B. started this. Uh, listen to Buddy Guy, he'll tell you this. Then the white people discover it like half a decade later. But throughout you know, the whole time, if you went to one of B.B.'s shows, and you can hear this at the Regal, if you listen to the Regal performance, I mean, he's introduced not as the greatest blues guitarist. He's introduced as the greatest blues singer uh, as late as 1964. So that's the that's the defining feature of his term on the Chitlin circuit. And what happens is over the years, you know, he goes from doing a lot of top 10 hits and making a lot of money to gradually, you know, earning less. He gets edged out in the 60s by the rising sort of soul movement. Um, it gets to where the younger black listeners are less interested in the blues and they spend his, so BB's audience is sort of aging and getting older and it's getting a little smaller. He's earning less money. He really gets frustrated. And I'm talking as late as about 1966, which is after live at the regal has been issued. He's still not broken through and he's still struggling and still cutting down his band and firing people and trying to make ends meet. This is after live at the regal. And that's where we get to. And, he, and he's even on a major label because he leaves modern records at the start of the 60s and goes on to ABC Paramount. But they don't know what to do with him. They think he's a singer, too. They're not marketing his guitar. They don't know what they have. And, and this is a tragedy. It's, it could have ended up with him going broke in the mid-60s and giving up. I mean, that's where it could have ended.
1: Yeah, easily. And let's hear our final song. And this is The Thrill Is Gone. This is the song that permanently establishes B.B. King as a icon in the American pop Stratosphere. was bb king's the thrill is gone as you've got some training in the background i have my dog going crazy earlier um, <laughs> and an interesting thing about the abc paramount tenure is you know they he follows ray charles to that label ray had left atlantic and gone to abc paramount and had massive success doing country music to the pop audience country radio wouldn't play ray Charles's uh, versions of country songs but pop america loved it but they didn't know what to do with him he didn't quite he couldn't follow that model. So they haven't followed the James Brown live at the Apollo model. And you see this with lots of R&B acts in this period. Ike and Tina Turner, et cetera, uh, um, uh, uh, Etta James. We're so lucky to have so many live albums from the great black performers of this era because everybody wanted to have another live at the Apollo, which is a yeah. massive crossover success to white audiences and, a, and an album hit, which is much more profitable than having singles hits so and also going back and listening to the singles collection which i did in, in his 50s albums bb very much fits into the mainstream of rhythm and blues in a way that say howlin wolf and muddy waters didn't and they didn't make it big on the Chitlin' circuit they had club tours they did and they played they were big in chicago and they had hit records on the radio and in jukeboxes but they were outliers they were playing this combination of old style Delta blues with hyper-modern noise and amplification. So they were very odd ducks. Whereas B.B. fits more in with the sort of meat and potatoes of R&B at that time, although he doesn't fit in with the rock and roll revolution. He never enjoys the crossover success of contemporaries like Little Richard and Fats Domino and Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and others. Which is interesting, because for a long time I was thinking, ah, the Pentecostal roots is the key to that. Like, if you have that Pentecostal mm. fervor, like Jerry Lee Lewis or Little Richard, that's what makes you a rock and roller as opposed to an R&B guy. But BB had those Pentecostal roots. You describe him singing Thomas Dorsey songs in church and the whole bit. But somehow he doesn't click with that. Um, but then he does finally click with white audiences. Tell us yeah. about that big crossover at the Fillmore and, and, and – how he met that audience, how Bill Graham brought him forward and how he reacted to it.
2: Yeah. Well, the first thing is, is that I would say that up to the, for the first 15 years of his career, BB's model was the great rhythm and blues acts that were topping the charts. Uh, like Louis Jordan, he saw himself, he wanted to be leading a big band dressed in suits, you know, playing charts, not playing old folk blues songs with or without distortion, you know, uh, that was his model. Now, he wound up doing a lot of wonderful, slimmed down, powerful urban blues recordings. And, and you've got to get that modern record stuff. That's the best B.B. King.
1: Yeah, but, absolutely. But, and his it's, guitar it's, does cut through all these tracks. All I don't want to give the idea yeah, that it was just yeah. that even you know, if you're hearing a great compilation of 50s R&B, B.B. B. B. will fit in. And then the guitar solo comes and you're just going, wow, that really stands out. <laughs>
2: He, he saw himself, I think, as a successor to like the Timpany Five, you know, the, the trimmed down big band like Louis Jordan, you know, five or six pieces, tight, powerful. But anyway, so they get into this. So Live at the Regal actually comes out and still no white people know who he is. Um, not that matters. It's just that, he, you know, he deserves to be everybody's favorite blues artist. Right. So uh, we get to about 67 and. Artists such as the people in the Butterfield Band, uh, uh, Elvin Bishop, who I interviewed, and and uh, Bloomfield, Mike Bloomfield, are, are are arguing vociferously that BB deserves to be playing these huge hippie palaces like like the Fillmore. And Bill Graham, you know, was Catholic in his tastes. He loved all kinds of music, so he finally said, "Okay, well, we'll have BB." So BB plays at the Fillmore, and it's a huge culture shock for BB and his band because they'd only. Up until like literally a week prior, they would all pretty, pretty much only played black uh, halls, black theaters, almost 100 percent, almost every gig. And so like a week before or a couple of weeks before the Fillmore gig, they do a warm up at a white kind of jazz and pop club in L.A. That's actually the first time that B.B. really plays for white audiences. That was written up in the L.A. Times, but no one really knows about it. So they do a week there and, you know, no one dies. It it, it works. It succeeds. So he he goes to the Fillmore and plays for the hippie throngs. And the thing is that as freaked out as BB and his musicians are to be playing for these weird hippies, they love him because they already know his music. Because Cream has been playing it and because the Butterfields have been playing it. And the Steve Miller Blues Band, which played that night, I think they played that night, (laughs) they'd been playing it. And, you know, the Grateful Dead was doing that stuff. All of the bands in San Francisco in 1967 were basically playing like B.B. King. So the fans loved it. And it was as if he's like, wow, you guys know who I am. They didn't know who he was like to recognize him on the street, but they sure as hell knew what he, what he sounded like. And it was love. And so from there, he, you know, he, he falls into the hands of a, of a good manager Uh, uh, Sid uh, Seidenberg, right? I I got Seidenberg, Sid Seidenberg. My God, my brain. (laughs) And Sid Seidenberg starts planning him on like, he starts going on to like the Rolling Stones tour. uh, in I think it's, is it October of 69? That's a huge break from moment for him where he plays for hundreds of thousands of of mostly white people and, and just doubles and triples and quadruples his audience. He ends up going on tonight. He goes on. Uh, you know, uh, Sullivan, Ed Sullivan, um, and and appears like on Ralph Gleason's PBS show and, and just Sidney Seidenberg working with B.B. They just basically get, reach these ever, ever higher lattices of layers of fame over the next few years until he becomes, and Rolling Stone becomes like the B.B. King Journal of Record, and is writing, Rolling Stone and writing about him constantly and he just opens up to this whole new, he's a citizen of, citizen of, of the United States and of the of the world after that, basically.
1: Yeah, and I constantly took him for granted through my youth. I mean he was always on PBS. He was always duetting with Eric Clapton somewhere and, and You know, I I just didn't get what the big I got that he was a big deal and I was fine with that, but it never inspired me to go, I've got to get back into his catalog. And then when you do look into his catalog, other than, you know, you gotta get these three live albums, it's this enormous catalog that you can't find anywhere and you know, and and so now with the streaming services and everything, there's no excuse. You can go back, you can easily hear his fifty singles, his classic sixties live albums, and this Man put together an incredible body of work that I think stands with anybody. And it's not his fault George Bush gave him the National Medal of Freedom Award or that Bondo loved him or whatever. I mean, you know, and, and so there's so many things that I'd love to talk about, and we don't have time to get to um, his mysterious, apparently, infertility problems, although he ends up with dozens of, not dozens, but about a dozen semi like none of them were the children of women he was married to or lived with. They're all children of women who claim to have been with BB on the road and he would basically take them all in. But you argue that he's probably sterile. So that's a fascinating story uh in there. I'm fascinated with the idea that jazz should have and could have claimed him in the 50s easily he's influenced by these jazz guitars charlie christian lonnie johnson what he's doing with the long improvisations on the guitar is jazz it wasn't necessarily the kind of jazz charlie parker and dizzy gillespie were playing it wasn't modern jazz but it was jazz it's interesting to me that jazz is this critical edifice rejected these r&b players much to the you know to the long-term that's why jazz is a museum genre today, although it keeps you know, coming back and mm. happily refuses to die. But the jazz police managed to police B.B. King right out of that category. <laughs> um, so anyway, just just a, a great, great book it tells the story of a great man. And my guest has been Daniel DeVizay. The book is King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And thanks, more importantly, for writing this book.
2: Oh, no, thank you. This is a great podcast. Thank you for doing it.
1: My pleasure.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at com. On Monday, Nate welcomes Dale Cockrell to discuss the 19th century New York underworld of prostitution and dancing that saw the evolution of American music from minstrelsy to ragtime. Let it roll as a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football